Hey guys, how is it going? Um, have a fantastic episode of Crystal Kyle and Friends today with someone we both, I think, admire a lot, Dr. Carl Hart. He's saying very brave things and very truthful things about the utter failures of the war on drugs, the stigma around drugs, but goes that extra mile of not just saying, hey, this should be decriminalized, this should be legalized, but actually I may advocate for adults to use drugs in a responsible way as an additive to their lives. So very excited to talk to him. But first, lots going on this week. Um, More massive Democratic failures in terms of the relief bill, dropping the minimum wage, also deciding at the last minute, hey, we're not going to give it to 17 million people that we gave the checks to last time. But also some amazingly stupid culture war bullshit that we wanted to break down for you. You want to start with that, Kyle? Uh, Yeah. So, you know, the big thing... the first thing, actually, was Mr. Potato Head, mm-hmm. um, I, which, by the way, the fact that we're even discussing Mr. Potato Head, like, just shoot me in the face. Like, what am I even doing <laughs> with my life? Toy. What life decisions did I make? That did you of... have one when you were a kid? Did you play with one? No, I, Mr. Potato Head. That's the dumbest toy of all time. Like, <laughs> I like Take it. its nose off. Put its nose back on. Put the nose where the eyeball is. Ooh, <laughs> I'm having so much fun over here. Like it's ridiculous. I liked it. It's a stupid toy. Come on. <laughs> I was obviously playing. See, I, now see this is even more politically incorrect, but I'll say it anyway. When I was a kid, toy guns were still in fashion, mm-hmm. and so I would run around, you know, where I lived with a toy gun. Yeah. And I even had some ones that were like from my grandfather or some shit that didn't even have the orange tip on it. Oh yeah. So you might see little eight-year-old Kyle running with a gun, and thank God a neighbor didn't get scared and call the cops or whatever, because I could have ended poorly because it looked like I was holding a real gun basically. I was all uh, My Little Ponies, Shira. My Little Pony. Shira was a big thing. Rainbow Bright. So this was is very favorite. So this is listen. We're both very gender. Typical here. We're both mm. very, you know, I'm toxically masculine, <laughs> and you're, um, what's the, I was like, you what's know, the flip side of toxic masculinity? I don't know. Mm, talk amazing femininity. Uh, um, yeah, it's all, something like that, right? <laughs> yeah, that's that's funny that we're both sort of fitting those those uh, stereotypes. Anyway, so Mr. Potato Head, they changed the name <laughs> from Mr. Potato Head to Potato Head. <gasps> How could they? Yeah, so conservatives lost it, and then. The, the response from Democrats and liberals was like to say how awesome it is that it's potato head. And listen, my take on this and then there's the Dr. Seuss thing, which we could talk about as well. Yeah. Uh, but my take on this whole thing is like, I don't want to take the culture war bait. I just want to remove myself from all the culture war stuff because it is bait. And it, the whole point of the culture war, whether it's brought up by the media or brought up by politicians, the whole point of it is like. Talk about this shit and talk about this shit all day long as I run out the back door with all the money and I rig the system and there's immense corruption and, you know, billionaires will keep getting richer and corporations will keep getting richer and I'm going to keep shipping your jobs overseas and I'm going to keep lowering your wages and all that shit. So I view the whole thing as a tedious distraction. And so that's what pisses me off about it. Basically... I really do have the enlightened centrist position on this, where my view is, <laughs> if you're if you're talking about this a lot, on either side, go fuck yourself. Right. Go fuck yourself. Yeah. Like, yeah. don't, <laughs> so, like, don't, if you're the company that changed it from Mr. Potato Head to Potato Head, sort of fuck you. Like, nobody was asking for that. But then if you respond to that angrily, fuck you too, because who gives a fuck? Right. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, just sort of yes fuck everybody in this conversation. Yes to all of that. No, and it reminds me of, like, you know, I I think a core part of this that we can't miss 
why these particular culture war battles are being elevated and escalated by the right at the moment is I was just looking at the rate Fox News ratings have completely crashed mm. in the Biden era like MSNBC beat them in February Whoa, which is pathetic that's ridiculous they're down 30 percent year over year so they're desperate for something which is why they went all in on like potato head Give the and Dr. Seuss stuff Dr. I'm- Seuss so that's the other one and this one god this is like the other thing that's so frustrating about this and why in spite of the fact that we fucking hate these types of issues we're talking talking about it right now mm-hmm. because the Dr. Seuss one in particular I feel like has really broken through with Normie America. Totally. Like this is something totally. my mom casually brought up to me and I was at a restaurant with my son. The booth over from me is taught and I live in like a, a rural pretty conservative area. Booth next to me is talking about this mm. in outrage terms etc. So basically The Dr. Seuss Foundation, who sort of controls his estate and his library catalog, whatever, they decided to take six books out of the rotation for sale. So these books can no longer be purchased online, again, because of the Dr. Seuss Foundation. Why? Because they had some extraordinarily racist caricatures in them. So give some examples of that. So, So, okay, two specific examples. I'm reading from CNN right now. According to the study are found in the books, The Cat's Quizzer, Are You Smarter Than the Cat in the Hat? And If I Ran the View, um, the zoo rather, in The Cat's Quizzer, the Japanese character is referred to as a Japanese, has a bright yellow face, and is standing on what appears to be Mount Fuji. (laughs) Regarding if I ran the zoo, study points out another example of Orientalism. Um, The three and only three Asian characters who are not wearing conical hats are carrying a white male on their heads. So uh, the text beneath the Asian characters describes them as helpers who all wear their eyes at a slant from countries no one can spell. So... Problematic, to say the least. And also, just to interject here for a second, um, Dr. Seuss would draw people that are supposed to be from Africa as monkeys or gorillas. And that was a common thing that he did. So, and it's interesting because when you turn on Fox News and they talk about this, they'll bring up the fact that they took six Dr. Seuss books away. How ridiculous is that? But then they never give you the specifics as to why. Right. Because they know that once they say, like, yeah, Called black him, like, people as monkeys, and like, whatever, bro. And, yeah. yeah. Like, they know if they bring up the specifics, people be like, yeah, I kind of see why they would do it. Yeah. You know, so they don't bring up the specifics. So, I mean, in terms of the decision to take these books down, I just really don't care one way or another. Like, mm-hmm. I could see making the decision of, like, let's have a warning label on this. So, for example, um, I love Sesame Street being, again, a child of the 80s. We're talking a lot about my 80s upbringing here. And um, I bought the old historic DVD set of, like, the original Sesame Streets, which are mostly amazing and also have some racist and problematic things in them. Really? Yes, really. Um, even though, for the time, they were very progressive. They've always been ahead of the curve, but they're still a product of their time so yes there were some very like racist do you have any bit. examples you could share or? i mean i don't really want to get into it does big bird say like, the n-word i don't know like, just... <laughs> this whole, there's a whole high school this muppet jefferson and it's like all black muppets in the school and it's very caricaturish that sort of thing okay so um so anyway you can still buy them but they have a warning on the front that's basically like look this isn't really appropriate for children anymore and mm-hmm. i'm f- fine with that right And I'd be fine if they did something similar with these books. But I also don't care if they're like, you know what? This just doesn't reflect the legacy of Dr. Seuss that we really want out there. He's got a bajillion other books. Let's just stick with those ones and take these. I just don't care. Mm -hmm. But, of course, again, 
This is seized on. It's got a great headline you can put on. It is like, oh, liberals are so crazy. They're even going after Dr. Seuss now. And it becomes a whole news cycle on Fox News. And then, yeah, the outrage wars begin. And again, I think at the core of this is the fact that conservative media is kind of like falling apart and don't know what else to do. And they certainly don't want to talk about the fact that every single Republican voted against the relief bill, doesn't back a minimum wage, doesn't even want a single dollar of checks to go out to the American. Like, they don't want to talk about any of that. Biden has been very difficult for them to effectively demonize the way that they did with Obama and Hillary. And so instead, they go to these like really super stupid type of fights that unfortunately, because because they have this kind of mainstream connection actually do grab hold with a lot of people. And a lot of people only get that headline of like, oh, Dr. Seuss is being banned. Cancel culture is out of control. Yeah. And actually, let's cut to I want to show this Glenn Beck video of him talking about this exact issue. They are banning Dr. Seuss books. How much more do you need to see before all of America wakes up and goes, this is fascism. This is fascism. You don't destroy books. What is wrong with us, America? Go out and buy those books today. Find out if you can get them. Buy Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head. Because it's the end of an era. It is the end of freedom in America. So Fascism. Yes, it's fascism <laughs> for Dr. Seuss Enterprises, the company, to decide to stop selling six of about 40 Dr. Seuss books. That's fine. And by the way, the hilarious response here is that all the conservatives are rushing out to buy the book. The company that... The company that they're buying the books from is the same company that made, made the decision. <laughs> so, like, you're punishing the people by rewarding them. You're reward. <laughs> you're giving them a tremendous amount of money over at Dr. Seuss Enterprises. They couldn't have drawn this up better as a plan. Yeah, I was just gonna look the top books on Amazon right now. It's like number one through thirty-two or something are all Dr. Oh my Seuss God. books because of exactly this thing, this like conservative backlash. And yeah, it's silly because. They made the decision. The exact people that and they think they're protesting are also the people that they're enriching. And by the way, Kevin McCarthy went on the floor of the House and said <laughs> that the Democrats are outlawing Dr. Seuss. There isn't a single Democratic politician that had Dickie McGee's acts do with any of this. <laughs> I'm sure they, uh, most of them just kind of wish it would go away, actually. Exactly. They'd rather, you, they have their own ways of, like, covering for their failures. Like, with near, the Neera Tandon debate, it's like, oh, she's a trailblazing woman. That's their way of covering for their failures is a lot of times. I mean, they've got their own culture war issues right now. But I do feel like the right is, at the moment, leaning super hard into the culture well, war because they got nothing else. Literally nothing else. So all they have is the culture war and when you lean into the culture war stuff you can convince people at home like like your mom not throw your mom under the bus but your mom, that this issue landed with your mom she's like well what the hell is this right and if she's if, a, and she's a, a teacher by the way a children's like preschool teacher and if you make the connection between that and the democrats then people think ah they're ridiculous they're Democrats. ridiculous yeah, yeah. And, and you don't and you don't want to look into it further but anyway to state my position it's it's very similar to your position listen if i'm at the company dr seuss am i going to say am i going to vote for let's change the books i'm actually not because 
nobody was asking for it. Nobody was asking for it. Nobody was thinking about it. You know, were they problematic? Were those things problematic? Absolutely. But they were made in a previous generation. It is what it is. Like, I, we can we can go back and change everything in the historical record to be politically correct by 2021 standards, but that's just a waste of time. Like, yeah, we get it. Today, somebody wouldn't make those books, but at the time they did make those books. So if I'm if I have a vote and I'm in the room, I'm saying, nah, I'm I'm not really in favor of changing it. Having said that, if they do vote to change it, I'm like, okay, I totally get it. It's not what, a big yeah, deal. Yeah, whatever, no big deal either way. Which gets to my overall point on all of these culture war issues. My point is always the same. Sort of fuck you if you have a really hard opinion on it in either direction. Like, <laughs> sort of fuck you. Like, you shouldn't... I, I'm mad that we're even talking about it. We shouldn't even be talking about it. Because it is a giant distraction from the $2,000 checks, from right. the $15 minimum wage, from every single goddamn issue that matters. And again, that's intentional, right? That's right, not, It's yeah. not an accident that it's a distraction from that. And I'm actually reminded, there's, reminded, there was a big interview with David Shore this week, who's like the data analyst. Mm -hmm. He's the one who had tweeted something out about the riots and got fired for it, isn't that? I think that's, anyway, it, very interesting analysis. Didn't agree with all of it. But one of the cases that he made that I do agree with is in certain ways, Donald Trump was bad for the Republican Party because he's he's unpopular, right? He just lost the presidency, he lost the House, he lost the Senate, et cetera. But in one very specific way, he was good for them, which is that he was basically the king of the culture war and came to basically embody the culture war in and of himself. Mm -hmm. And that type of polarization is part of why you've seen um, somewhat of a lessening of actually racial polarization and more of an um, increase in education mm -hmm. polarization around these culture war issues. And because of that, because you have more non-college voters of all races flowing into the Republican Party, they happen to be very uh, geographically politically convenient, obviously in terms of the Electoral College, but also in terms of being able to win the House, being able to win the Senate ultimately. So he helped to exacerbate the structural advantages that Republicans already had by dividing everybody around these like cultural lines. So yeah, when you look at CPAC and you look at Fox News and you look at Glenn Beck and Kevin McCarthy on the floor of the House and you see that they're going all in on these issues, that's not an accident. This is their affirmative political strategy. Because if you are talking about the minimum wage or the relief checks or health care or any of these broad majoritarian economic issues, Democrats are popular on them. You know, overwhelmingly, the Democratic position is way more popular. And by the way, if you're polarized along those economic lines, then you're going to be polarized in a way that is more beneficial to Democrats, where those working class people start to move back into the Democratic Party because they align with them more there. So essentially what Trump did is you had a lot of especially more conservative black and brown voters who are with the Democratic Party for historical reasons or for economic reasons. And because they use these cultural issues and made Trump a cultural issue himself, you saw some bleed of those groups into the Republican Party where they align more culturally with them. So I think the bottom line is these culture war issues are the GOP. That's basically all they are right now. And that's their strategy. And in a lot of places, it will actually be successful. Well, yes, it, it's very likely to be successful, at least to an extent, because 
Democrats are dipshits and they don't know how to handle this stuff. They don't know how to respond in an effective and efficient way. Um, but it doesn't have, it certainly doesn't have to be the end all be all. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to be a winner for them. It's only a winner for them because Democrats are beyond pathetic. But as you're talking there, hit me. It's the exact same concept as Thomas Frank's What's the Matter with Kansas? Because yes, it's, that's true. it's what he was describing at the time. I think it was early 2000s, right? It's virtue signaling around religion and abortion and prayer in school mm-hmm. and linking with people at that cultural level mm-hmm. and that social issues level to then sneak in the back door with the with the corporate agenda and the corruption yeah right and it's the exact same thing here except now it's being weaponized in a more modern way where it's not necessarily religious it's around culture and tradition and their the ideas like well if you're attacking dr seuss is there anything that cancel culture it's, won't come it's and take a modern from you? iteration of like the whole merry christmas debate of course it's like yeah. the exact mm-hmm. same thing cultural signaling and and also what i wanted to say about trump is that hate is a powerful thing and the ace up his sleeve that trump has which democrats have not caught caught on to this yet at all is that trump sort of hates everybody and everything and he's got a general vibe of like go fuck yourself like his whole demeanor and aura is like i don't care go fuck yourself Mm -hmm. and for people if trump hates who you hate that makes you like him more well, it's not just it's it's actually not just does he hate the people I hate? It's do they hate him back? Like I always think that the most appealing thing about Trump is the way that he makes some of the worst people lose their shit. Like that is actually it is kind of satisfying to watch when like the people in the media that are liars and shameless and that you hate when they're like tearing their hair out and melting down. Of course, the dirty secret is nobody was better for their bottom line and that their careers than Trump. And that's the real thing is all these people that he hated and that hated him right back, they also had this incredibly mutually beneficial relationship where they benefited more from him than perhaps anybody else. But that is, that was, you know, when we talk about, okay, what he ran on in 2016 and completely failed to deliver on any of the like vaguely populist things that he talked about, but he did deliver on this promise of like, this sort of cultural grievance, a very dismissive term, but that central promise of like, I'm going to make you culturally relevant and I'm going to drive these people. I'm going to piss in the punch bowl and I'm going to drive them fucking crazy. He delivered on that beyond anyone's wildest beliefs. Well, I mean, yes, he baits people into being the worst versions of themselves. Mm-hmm. That's what he does yes, with he the does. smug people in, in, you the know, moralizing, liberal media. Holier yeah. than thou. Yes. Right. He makes people, the worst versions of themselves and they think well the ends justify the means I'm gonna do anything to take this motherfucker down because I hate this motherfucker but then they act in a way that's even more obnoxious than him in pursuit of that goal right and so you know it's almost like a vicious cycle where then they start feeding off of each other and the smug people get more smug and Trump gets more arrogant and cocky yeah but also the smug people get richer and get more primetime shows and get better ratings so it was even though well not anymore now the ratings are going down yeah now the ratings are going down but while the Trump show was on it was ultimately great for them that's right. And I do. So there's this guy by the name of Tom Norton. He's running for Congress in Michigan. And I had to share this with everybody because I really do think this sums up this whole conversation, this whole debate in, you know, in, in a nutshell here. So he tweeted, the government cannot take my Goya beans, my Mr. Potato Head, my Dr. Seuss books or my AR-15. Come and take it. 
This is America. I'll eat my green eggs and ham on Christmas in my pickup truck if I want to. Enough cancel culture. So that's what that guy said, right? That's what he just said. He just said it uh, on the second. So couple days ago i guess what is is it the fourth today or third? whatever it doesn't matter anyway <laughs> but then somebody no went somebody went and, and looked uh-huh he said boycott target when target says it would require guests to continue to wear masks when you know how texas yeah, lifted yeah, the mask yeah. mandate mm-hmm. so target was like it doesn't matter in texas targets you have to wear a mask you have to wear a mask he said boycott target he said it the day after railing against cancel, cancel culture. culture. <laughs> I'm against this cancel culture, bro, unless I ideologically agree with it, in which case, cancel everybody. Well, and that's the thing that about cancel culture. That I mean, I even des- despise the term. Yeah, me too. It's gross. Uh, because it's yeah, because it's basically synonymous to me with gross hypocrisy. Yes. Where yeah, you only see the parts of it that you want. And there are very few people who are consistent about this. Like the right I mean, the classic example is the right never notices when someone is canceled loses their job often the times and this is i think the pe- thing that people probably get more canceled for than anything else for their views on israel and palestine yes mm-hmm. like there's never a lot of these states they're passing laws mm-hmm. to basically ban protest like talk about freedom and cancel culture edward snowden julian assange they're the most canceled people in the fucking country how about that yeah, yeah. and so while actually you know oftentimes i agree with some of the rights critiques about censorship right. and tech platforms and all of sure. that there's a just utter blind spot when it comes to anything that might be on the left of the spectrum and it just shows you like I mean, they don't actually mean anything they're saying. It's just a useful weapon, again, in their culture wars and also to try to to try to try make sure that they're free to do what they want and they don't really give a shit if the other side is, too. That's exactly right. Partisan brain worms are incredibly annoying. Um, so we're going to hop into the interview in a second. But real quick, I just want to get your commentary on this. Virginia just legalized marijuana for 2024. Yeah. You're from Virginia. Thoughts? Um, I mean, for top line thought, great. It was not a guarantee this was going to happen. There were some Democrat. It's Virginia is a totally blue state now. Democratic governor, Democratic Senate, Democratic House. Um, It's kind of absurd that it was even a question that this would ultimately go through. But it was, in fact, a question. Now it has gone through. I mean, there's a cynical part of me. And we'll get into this with with Dr. Hart. I'll ask him about this. But there's a cynical part of me that is like, oh, Virginia is the first state in the South to legalize marijuana. I wonder if it's a coincidence that Altria is based there and they stand to profit off of it. But um, look, ultimately, it is a huge step forward. It's something I support. And we'll see how the law is implemented. There's still a lot of details to be sort of sketched down. We'll see how the law is implemented, whether it is tilted towards, you know, the large corporate interest or whether it is a more, you know, democratizing type of reform. So progress, I guess, although okay. capitalism can always fuck it up. Yeah. I mean, my thoughts on it are like, good, you're legalizing weed, but they always have to add some dumb shit that they view as like a compromise where it's like all right we'll legalize it but like in a decade or right something. Well, it's like, 10 years are now you doing? either the idea is right or it's wrong we're Don't gonna make this... sure we give the republicans time to take back some political power so that they can undo the thing that we just right did. exactly anyway it, i think that's so silly but yes at least it's the first state in the south that took a step in that direction and now it's 16 or whatever however many states that it's legal at the state level all right so without further ado we have dr carl hart on the show today. He's a neuroscientist and a professor of psychology at Columbia University. I'm a huge fan of this guy. He's an expert on drugs. Here he is. 
Dr. Carl Hart, it's an absolute pleasure to talk to you. There's, uh, there's so much I want to ask you. I've been a really, really big fan of your work for a long time. In fact, I think uh, it was a couple weeks ago, I think you stumbled across a video of mine from 2015. And, and I think you tweeted it at me and said, hey, you know, I just caught this now. And I couldn't click the link because I didn't want to see myself in 2015. Mm, I probably it's looked, painful. Yeah, it's hard to see myself in old stuff or even new stuff. I don't want to see myself in anything. But anyway, <laughs> big fan of your work. Um, there's a, a lot I want to ask you. So first, let's just start broad here. Um, you wrote this new book. It's called Drug Use for Grownups, Chasing Liberty in the Land of Fear. Um, tell everybody a little bit about that. Tell them why you wrote the book and why you're taking on this topic, which has a tremendous amount of, uh, of a stigma around it. Yeah, I, I must say first that the pleasure is all mine for being here. So thank you all for having me. Our now, pleasure. I, 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 I wrote this book uh, mainly to take the, some pressure off of those people who have been identified and persecuted for simply being uh, a drug user. Uh, and so uh, I wanted to set the record straight. Uh, number one, uh, most people who use drugs are not addicts or they do not meet criteria for drug addiction. And it's a misapprehension that I have been operating uh, under for much of my career. And so I wanted to tell the public that I had been wrong, number one. Uh, and two, I wanted uh, more broadly people to think about the principles uh, or the promises that are guaranteed in the founding document, in the Declaration of Independence. And I wanted to use drugs as a tool to ask people to consider their own liberty. That is, uh, we all are guaranteed uh, at least three birthrights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Sometimes people use drugs in their pursuit of happiness. As long as they are not preventing others from doing the same, why do we get upset? And that's a, a, a major question I wanted to uh, struggle with in this book, and I wanted the reader to struggle with that question because um, the Declaration also says that uh, government should not be uh, created to restrict these rights, rights, but to guarantee, to secure these rights. Uh, and I think most Americans don't even understand what the Declaration of Independence uh, is, uh, what promises are laid out, and what it means to be an American. So uh, I hope this book helps in this uh, pursuit. So one of the things that, um, I mean, you make the case not just for, hey, we shouldn't be criminalizing drug use, but you actually make an affirmative case that drugs, when used responsibly, can be an additive um, to your life. Just make that case a little bit explicitly. And then I have another question about the idea of liberty, which I think it's really interesting that you frame it in that sort of moral context. Yeah, uh, when we think about drugs, uh, drug use enhancing people's life or enhancing activities in which people engage, we could think about something like alcohol. There are a number of studies that have shown that uh, moderate alcohol use is associated with health benefits. Um, alcohol decreases anxiety, facilitates social interactions. Uh, it can do all of those sorts of things. So too can heroin, so too can cocaine. Uh, but we don't talk about 
about these drugs in this way. Um, I uh, have had the benefit of studying drugs for 30 years in the lab, and I see these benefits after we give drugs to uh, research participants. Uh, most of the effects that we observe are positive. People are euphoric, people are happy, people are more uh, social, all of these are great behaviors, behaviors that we like to encourage because if people are happy, um, they're more likely to treat other people well, to treat other people better. That's a good thing. Yeah, and so my question is, even so that that may be the case, but you also make this in terms of you make an argument in terms of, look, this is your right. And whether it's good or bad for you, you should, as an adult, have the right to choose for yourself. So even if you had seen the opposite results in the lab, even if you saw like, actually, this is mostly detrimental to people, it's really harming their lives, it's causing all sorts of problems for them. Would you still make the affirmative case that just on the merits of people having independence and liberty within their own lives and decision making that you should be allowing these choices anyway? Uh, thank you. Excellent question. Absolutely, I would have to, I would be forced to make that uh, the same decision that I've made here if I'm going to consider myself uh, an American. If I'm going to consider myself someone who uh, is a proponent of individual rights, uh, a proponent of liberty, let's just think about professional football. We recently had the Super Bowl. People who engage in that activity are really harming their brains. That's the goal of that uh, uh, pursuit. Uh, people who are boxers in this country, you are trying to knock someone's head off. You're trying to give somebody uh, brain damage, basically. We allow that to happen as well we should because those adults have decided that they will participate in that activity and they that's their right. And uh, who am I to say that they can't? Uh, and so we do it all the time in our society. Uh, that is, we allow people to engage in activities in which we may think are dangerous, but they are adults and they have autonomy and we allow them to do it. Uh, but when it comes to drugs, we, we somehow, we lose our minds. And I'm trying to raise this issue with folks so they can see the inconsistency in our uh, behavior, in our rhetoric and everything. In a little bit, I want to get into some of my experiences with various substances and get your reaction um, to my experiences. But before we do that, um, I really highly recommend that everybody listening to this or watching this get your book because you are really like head on taking on some of society's like greatest standing taboos. And I really, really respect that. So one fact I want to get out there for everybody, and I'll ask you this because you're the expert on it and you know the numbers better than anybody else. What percentage of drug users are actually addicts in the sense that the drugs have a negative effect on their lives? And what percentage have a generally positive experience with various substances? Yeah, so when we look at the percentage of individuals who are addicted to any drug, um, the overwhelming majority of them, uh, the overwhelming majority of users of any drugs, I should say, are not addicted. When we think about something like 
cannabis. Less than 10% of those users will become addicted. Uh, methamphetamine, about the same numbers. Uh, something like alcohol, you can expect to get something like 10 to 20%. Uh, cocaine, about 20% uh, of the users might become addicted. Uh, something like heroin, a quarter or 30% will become addicted. Something like tobacco, a third of those users will become addicted. But the bottom line is that the majority, the vast majority of users of any substance won't become addicted. Yeah. And um, in your one of the things that's so courageous about this book is, again, you're not just saying, hey, we should decriminalize. You're making an actual affirmative case. Um, one of the things I was curious about is, like, were you nervous when you put this book out? Because there's been this whole, I mean, it's very predictable. There's been a right wing, like moral panic over it, subject of Fox News segments right, and all of yeah. that sort of stuff. Did you expect that? Has that been uncomfortable for you? Were you, yeah, were you, did you have trepidation? Were you nervous when you put this out there? Uh, yeah, uh, I talk about this. Uh, I had been in the closet for a number of years. I've been a coward because of some of the pressure that you lay out. Uh, but I kind of expected it, of course, but you never tolerate it, uh, particularly when it is um, uh, baseless and when the claims are, are, are baseless. But one of the things I didn't expect as much is that I didn't expect uh, criticism from uh, a, a small but vociferous uh, segment of the black community uh, who are so-called progressives. Um, mm. They don't like this position either, um, in part because uh, some are moralist. And, and people also talk about drug addiction and addiction causing all this ravage uh, in, in their communities. And that's why I originally started to study drugs in the first place. Uh, but um, they misattribute what's actually going on. Uh, it's not a drug problem, it's a problem of lack of employment, lack of education, uh, lack of resources, uh, our common, our, our old faux racial discrimination. It's all of these sorts of things, but it's easy to scapegoat drugs. And so um, that's what we've done as a nation. We just scapegoat drugs for uh, our problems. So I have, uh, there's a, a friend of mine who's a doctor and his dad is a doctor as well. And he's actually like a well-known, I guess, somewhat famous doctor within doctor circles. And <laughs> he, um, he traveled to France to give a speech one time. Cause that's one of the things he does. He gives speeches to other doctors and he told us a story about how after one of his lectures, there was a group of French doctors who came up to him and casually floated the idea in the same way that, you know, if you were with us, Dr. Hart, I'd ask you, hey, you want to grab a beer after this? They asked him, hey, you want to do some heroin with us? And, you know, as an American, <laughs> I heard that story when I was 20 whatever years old, and I was floored by it. I was like, wait, what? That's a thing? Because we have this you know, perception of heroin users and cocaine or crack users as like totally disheveled, life is completely a mess, can't do anything right, can't do anything on time, looks like they haven't showered in a week and a half or whatever. <laughs> but this was a group of French doctors who casually do heroin on the weekends. So I bring that story up to ask about the media smear campaign that just came after you recently. Talk a little bit about what your experience was with that drug, and then also how the media is smearing you and portraying it in such a negative light. 
Well, I, I guess I had a similar experience as, as your friend. Um, uh, heroin is just another opioid. Uh, when we think about oxycodone, uh, we think about uh, hydromorphone, which is in Vicodin, we think about all of these different opioids. They produce nearly identical effects as heroin, and morphine is essentially heroin. Uh, but the problem is that we've developed these narratives around heroin that vilifies that drug uh, in these unrealistic ways. Uh, and, and so Americans have this uh, uh, knee-jerk negative reaction towards that drug, but really, the concerns that Americans have are not so much with the drug, but the conditions under which heroin is typically taken in the United States. That is, mm. somebody may be injecting it, uh, and the, the substance that they're injecting is such a poor quality of heroin that it only contains about 10, five to 10 percent of heroin, and it contains all these other contaminants. And then people use uh, dirty needles, and that increases the likelihood of, of contracting a blood-borne illness. All of those are real problems, but they have little to do with heroin and more to do with the social conditions under which we have forced people to deal or to use heroin. We have forced them into the shadows. Uh, and so I think people misattribute what's going on. And and they uh, falsely vilify heroin when in fact heroin is essentially the same as oxycodone, essentially the same as hydromorphone. Uh, it is the same as morphine. And so uh, people don't know that. And part of the book, uh, the task of the book is to try to educate people on these and other facts. Can you give us some of that history of how that happened? Wasn't heroin originally developed by the like Bayer Aspirin Company? Mm. It used to be available over the counter. So how do we go from that, where my understanding is there were housewives who had like a sort of normal recreational heroin habit? Hell yeah, that's what I would being, do. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> All day as someone who's been a housewife, I can really relate to that. But <laughs> anyway, um, how did we get from that to the current depiction and um, prohibition around something like heroin? Yeah, so just a quick lesson. Uh, when we think of heroin, think of the opium poppy. Uh, the opium poppy contains codeine, morphine, and opium. Uh, morphine, the Bear, Bear Company, Bear Aspirin Company, in 1874, they just simply attached two acid groups to the morphine compound, and voila, that's heroin. The acid groups don't really contribute to any biological effects. So when people take heroin, they are essentially taking morphine. And the Bear Aspirin Company developed uh, heroin so that they could corner the market. They said, wow, we have this new pain reliever, this new cough suppressant. And so heroin was originally marketed as um, a cough suppressant. It works for that, that purpose, and some people still use it, but not for that purpose, mainly for pain. In Europe, it's prescribed for pain, just like morphine is prescribed for pain here. Uh, and in the United States, one of the things that happened in the early 1900s uh, was that we associated heroin and other opioids with um, the Chinese who had come over to help build the railroads after the Civil War. Uh, we were uh, jealous of the Chinese because they also had these opium dens that were uh, financially uh, lucrative. Uh, and so some male white uh, business uh, owners uh, uh, were jealous. And so they passed 
ordinance uh, uh, per, uh, which prohibited uh, white folks from going to these uh, opium dens because they said that uh, uh, these in these opium dens, the Chinese were corrupting good white women, good white children, and so forth. Um, and so um, that contributed to us banning uh, opioid uh, products as well as cocaine. But the cocaine history also has its roots in uh, racism against black people. Yeah, it's like money and racism is at the core of right. how we ended up with this entire system. Yeah, and you know, I wanna tell so I want to give since we're on the topic of uh, of opiates and opioids, um, I've told I've talked about this a little bit publicly, but I don't know if I've ever given it, you know, in such explicit terms. Back in 2010, 2011, and and part of 2012, I was going through a rough time. I had just graduated college, graduated into the Great Recession, so there were no jobs anywhere. I had a political science degree, which was basically useless, and I went and I sold cars. And uh, as I was a car salesman. I think I had this sense of like existential dread that overcame me of like, am I going to be stuck doing this forever? And I wasn't happy. If you asked me at the time, I probably would have lied and been like, yeah, I'm all right. But deep down, I wasn't happy. And then on top of that, in 2011, my father passed away from lung cancer. So it was a very, very tough time for me. And I would be lying if I didn't say that taking substances actually helped me get through it. And it, it eased a lot of the burden and a lot of the pain and a lot of existential dread to the point where I was, uh, as I was selling cars, what I would do is I would have like a couple, couple Percocet in the morning and that would sort of get me through the day. And uh, at, at night I would, this, this one probably wasn't as smart because you, whenever you mix substances, that's when it gets really questionable. But at the end of the day, I'd have like a four loco or something, which is basically like crack cocaine in a can, really. <laughs> so, but anyway, I, I tell that story because it, it would have been a lot harder to get through that time if I didn't have a substance that sort of gave me a sense of relief and made me feel happier. And what I found is that it actually made me better at my job and it made me better at communicating with people and it got me out of my own head and it was a social lubricant as you kind of alluded to before talking about alcohol and I feel like that's a a side of the equation that's just never discussed. Whenever people talk about these things, somebody would tell the story I just told and it would end with like, oh, then I had to go to rehab and I had all these troubles and it made my life worse. No, I'm an example of I was able to keep everything under control, and if anything, the drug use helped me. Thank you for uh, sharing that story. That's one of the things that I ask people to do is come out of the closet about your positive drug experiences, especially if you are middle class, you're doing well, you're contributing to the society. We just don't hear those stories in our films, in our culture. Uh, your experience with opioids are consistent with the literature. There is a growing literature now that shows that opioids are effective antidepressants. Um, in Europe, they have been seeing this sort of thing for uh, more than 20 years. Uh, and so uh, you're spot on. Uh, the vast majority of drug effects are positive, uh, but the way we talk about it in this society it's like it would be like uh, when we talk about cars that we only talk about car accidents uh, so can you imagine if you were trying to find some information on cars and the only thing you could find information on are car crashes and how to repair car crashes that's what we're doing with drugs and that's inappropriate and that's what i'm trying to raise in the book 
Do you feel an obligation to highlight more of the positive side of the drug use because the negative side is so overcovered? So it's like you want to focus just on the positive part. I don't want to say to the exclusion of the negative possibilities of addiction and, you know, the overdose deaths and all of that we, that we've seen, especially as troubled and sick as our society is today. Do you feel like your role in this is to really sort of add that piece of the picture that is basically absent everywhere else? Yeah, you know, Crystal, you raise a really good point here because um, one of the things that happened when I was writing this book, I was trying to write a book about joy and pleasure and happiness and those sorts of things, but I kept getting a sidetrack or pushback from my editor saying, don't forget to talk about the opioid crises here. It's like peppered throughout every chapter. Mm. Uh, and so the book certainly contains a lot of information about how we deal with uh, the current opioid situation, uh, more so than I had originally intended. So that's certainly there. Uh, but. I don't think I can actually talk enough about the positive effects because uh, uh, the negative effects have been so disproportionately presented in the sort of popular media that one would be hard pressed to overstate the positive effects of drug use. Uh, it, that's an almost impossible task. You have a phrase that I absolutely love. Uh, it's psychedelic exceptionalism. Um, <laughs> I heard you talk about this. And no, it, I mean, it, that really struck home with me because what I've encountered talking to a number of people is that there are certain substances that now make the cut for polite society or to not polite society, but a certain segment of society that's broader than, you know, you and I, in, in that we're like sort of tolerant of all drug use, but when it comes to psychedelics, like, you know, shrooms or whatever, and then when it comes to marijuana, we're at a point now in society where they're starting to make the cut more and they're viewed in a similar category to alcohol or like close to alcohol and that it's kind of socially accepted. But what I respect about what you're doing is you're like, actually, no, throw cocaine in there, throw heroin in there, throw the other ones in there. And I say that because now, this is just me, and I, and I get that it varies person to person, but in my experience, I actually don't have a positive reaction to marijuana. Marijuana is mildly psychedelic, but it does make me feel extremely paranoid, um, and I've never even tried psychedelic substances, and I think that's just because I view myself as a little borderline anyway, and I don't want to take a substance that you know gives me a bad trip or whatever, but... Uh, Talk a little bit about that, about psychedelic exceptionalism and how certain substances are, are beginning to get more accepted while others are still still completely have a stigma attached to them. Wow, Cal, Cal you, are, you are truly my brother uh, because <laughs> you and I, we have, we have similar sort of experience with these substances. I feel similarly about you on, on these sort of things uh, because uh, with marijuana, I have, you know, it's not my uh, favorite psychoactive substance, but, you know, to each his own. I feel like you in, in many respects. Uh, my concern that I raise in the book about psychedelic exceptionalism is that uh, we have articulate uh, middle-class folks who are uh, now out of the closet about their psychedelic use psilocybin, ayahuasca, or DMT, and a number of other drugs uh, that are classified as psychedelics. 
at the same time, uh, while they're enjoying this sort of uh, rehabilitation of the reputation of their substance, and they're, join they're enjoying this warm reception from mainstream, uh, other people who are using drugs, even drugs that are considered psychedelics, in some cases like PCP, uh, this community has been silent uh, as these other folks are vilified. And um, we can think about something like uh, ketamine, which is considered a psychedelic, and then we think about PCP. Those drugs are nearly identical chemically as well as the effects that they produce. But the narratives surrounding the two drugs are wildly different. Ketamine, you can take it to enhance your spiritual journey or whatever nonsense people say. Well, it's not nonsense, whatever people are feeling. Uh, and then PCP, uh, it has this narrative that uh, when people take that drug, they develop superhuman strength. So much so, police officers can get away with brutality because someone had PCP in their system. We can think about um, uh, Laquan McDonald, the kid who was shot 16 times in Chicago. Originally, they said he had PCP in his system, therefore the killing was justified. Mm -hmm. Then we saw the video and we see that that was a lie. Um, we can think about uh, Daniel Prude in Rochester, New York. They said they, the focus was on the PCP in his system and the psychedelic community has been silent on these things. And uh, I find that abhorrent, and I, that's why I called it out. Yeah. Well, and how much of this, I mean, it's all basically about race and class, right? Because you go back to, because sometimes these differences in the way these drugs are viewed is then codified in our criminal justice system with the disparity between crack and cocaine being the prime example mm. where cocaine is seen as this sort of like upper class white drug. Crack is, you know, the equivalent thing, but is predominantly in the black community among lower income folks. And so not only is the perception different, but the treatment by the criminal justice system ends up being different with devastating consequences. You're absolutely right, and that's why I felt compelled to say something about it, and I am so happy that uh, people like you, uh, Crystal and Cal, you caught that, and I hope that you amplify this because it's just not right. Uh, people are people, they're doing the same thing. They are taking substances to alter their consciousness, and as long as they're not bothering any, anyone, uh, why should we care, and why should we not come to their aid? Yeah. All right. Now it's time for some college Adderall stories. So <laughs> when, I, when I was in college, um, that was my drug of choice in college was Adderall. And, you know, the story is that and for some people, this probably is the case if they have ADHD, they take Adderall. And the idea is if you have attention deficit disorder and you take that substance, it actually makes you focus more. But if you don't have ADD or ADHD and you take it, it gives you like a cocaine like high, a very uppy euphoric high and you know you sort of want to make a business and talk to everybody and you feel like god and in my experience um it made me it made me very sociable i hate dancing but when i had adderall i wanted to dance uh very kind of a funny <laughs> reaction if you ask me but you know what's interesting is that reaction that i had in college it's almost like as i grew more it's like I outgrew the preference for that sort of a high is that a thing like does that happen with some people or what uh, of course we mature and the effects that we seek 
they are altered over time. Uh, we could think about uh, people who may do MDMA, which is an amphetamine, just like Adderall. Um, you can think about when you were younger, some people wanted to be out in the clubs dancing when they had their MDMA. As they get older, they would much prefer to be with their significant other and sharing intimate, intimate moments, as opposed to being in crowds uh, of strangers. Uh, that changes over, the, over time time and that's just a part of human development. So give us a little bit of um, Dr. Carl Hart's beginner's guide to drug use. Like if you were teaching a course that's like, here's what's out there, here's how it will make you feel, here's what you need to know, here's what to be careful with, what are some of the things that you would say? Yeah, and so in chapter three, that this is the beginner's guide where I talk about the most important things uh, for uh, newbies or people who are just beginning. Uh, the most important things is for people to understand dose. Uh, if you're a novice, whatever you're taking, start off with smaller doses. Uh, make sure you take these drugs in a comfortable environment that's not going to be anxiety provoking. And most important, however, is that you actually are taking what you think you have. Uh, unfortunately, in the United States, we don't have this thing called drug checking where you can submit small samples of your substance and then you get a chemical printout, a readout, what's contained in the substance, uh, and then you can decide whether or not to take it based on uh, whether there are adulterants or contaminants. Um, so the most important thing is to make sure you know what you have because oftentimes people get substances that they don't know what's contained in the substance. And and it might contain and uh, contaminant. Uh, another sort of thing is that uh, if you are a novice, uh, you probably don't want to start off by shooting uh, drugs in your vein with a needle. That's not the smartest thing to do as a novice. Um, people who inject intravenously, they typically have more experience, they know what they're doing, and hopefully they have clean works or clean needles, clean syringes uh, to, decrease, to de decrease the likelihood of a, uh, uh, contracting a bloodborne illness. Um, also, smoking the same sort of thing. Typically, uh, novice don't really want to smoke uh, because uh, when you smoke or inject a drug intravenously, uh, it dumps a whole lot into your bloodstream and so you get this sort of uh, a rush or this uh, immediate rapid effect uh, that you might not be prepared for. Uh, but novice also take uh, cannabis uh, orally sometimes and they don't feel the effect for 45 minutes, an hour, 90 minutes later. Uh, so uh, before feeling the effects, sometimes they put too much in their gut. Uh, and then when you have too much cannabis in your gut, uh, the effects can be overwhelming when they start to hit. So be patient uh, if you are taking cannabis orally um, because the effects will come on uh, and don't start out with large doses because you can be an anxious or even paranoid for several hours afterwards. So be careful and um, please attend to dose route of administration and make sure you have the substance that you need, that you think you have. So for for the small percentage of users who have a real problem, the genuine addicts, a good way I like to think of it is just saying that there's some percentage of people who don't have the off button. They can't just 
have a little bit or have a decent amount, it's always they, they overdo it and then there's issues and then they can't take care of basic responsibilities or what have you. In your expert opinion, and I don't even know if there is an answer to this, I don't know if there is a scientific consensus on this, but in your expert opinion, what's the best treatment for addicts? Yeah, um, it's a really difficult question because there's no one shoe that fits all. Uh, when we think about addiction, we're talking about the definition that's laid out in the DSM-5, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association. It lays out 11 symptoms that uh, people can endorse, and you have to endorse a certain amount in order to be labeled an, an addict. The bottom line is that uh, the person has um, disruptions in their psychosocial functioning. That is, they are not meeting major obligations. They are troubled uh, by these symptoms. Um, and so when people uh, meet criteria for, uh, for addiction, they meet criteria for a variety of reasons. Sometimes people meet criteria for addiction because they have co-occurring psychiatric illnesses. And the best thing mm. to do is to treat those, psych those other illnesses and then the addiction typically resolves. In other cases, uh, people meet criteria for addiction because uh, they have had unrealistic expectations heaped upon them. You can imagine, let's just think about uh, child celebrities or people who are celebrities. They have their entire family and network depending upon them uh, for support, financial support, uh, and then this young person typically uh, has all of these ex these demands. Um, they have to perform. Um, they don't have a, a childhood. They don't have a life. Uh, you can imagine people getting in troubles with substances there. Uh, for them, uh, the treatment might be, uh, how about we look at this person's life and give this person some relief and also give them some skills uh, in terms of how to handle uh, these kind of problems. In other cases, we can think about the, the Rust Belt of America. Um, uh, for, the, for the past 20, 30 years or so, uh, factories like GM and other factories have left the Rust Belt uh, for other countries for cheaper labor. Uh, but the people who were in those communities where they were making middle class livings, where they were somebody in their communities, they now, they no longer have those jobs, those good paying, paying jobs. And you can see how some of those people might get in trouble with not only drugs, but, but with other things. Uh, the, the, the way to solve those people's problems, of course, is how about we bring uh, back jobs that uh, uh, pay a decent living? Um, how about we make sure that those folks, uh, children uh, uh, are able to get an education, they have healthcare. All of these are reasons for why people uh, may meet criteria for addiction, but it's incumbent upon us who are trying to treat addiction to make sure that we carefully examine the individual and their environment. You made a really great point there that I just want to uh, highlight for everybody because this, honestly, this never occurred to me, but when I heard you say it, I had a light bulb moment. Um, you said that with a lot of people who have this issue, there's oftentimes other underlying mental health problems. So if you see somebody on the street, heroin addict, crack addict, whatever it may be, 
you know, you scratch beneath the surface and you can find out this person's actually paranoid schizophrenic and it's untreated. And so if you treat the paranoid schizophrenia, you realize very quickly, perhaps the drug use wasn't even the real issue here. It was, you know, it was just incidental that the person happened to use drugs. And I also like that you highlighted there's basically no clean answer on these things and you have to take it on a case by case basis. And it reminded me of a couple things I, I heard one of them, a friend of mine, his father had an addiction issue. At one point it was pills, and another time it was alcohol. And um, the thing that ended up working for him was that he agreed to take a pill every morning, and it's a pill that if you drink alcohol when you're on the pill, you get violently sick and you throw up. So it's like a negative reinforcement type approach to it. And for whatever reason, that ended up working with him specifically. Hmm. Uh, and then another idea I heard that I thought was interesting is that it, it's – I just heard of this now. I mean, I'm 32. I probably should have heard of this earlier, but um, am I 32 or 33? Anyway, <laughs> uh, is this new idea where, like, am I? Yes. Okay. I don't, I, don't even know. I don't even know when I was born, <laughs> Dr. Hart. Um, <laughs> it, it's this idea where somebody you trust can actually control your intake of the substance. So you entrust in somebody, hmm. you can control how much I have. And it's a it's a way to not do total abstinence, still get a fix, but have it, you know, sort of in somebody else's hand and it brings a level of objectivity to it. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah. You, you named a, a few sort of treatment modalities like your friend who takes the pill, um, uh, uh, who's uh, struggling with alcohol abuse. Uh, that pill is called an abuse. Um, it disrupts alcohol metabolism such that uh, some toxic chemicals build up in the system. And so you feel violently ill if you take alcohol. Uh, Another thing you alluded to was this notion that if somebody meets uh, criteria for addiction, they can still use the substance that they are abused, that they are uh, currently uh, addicted to. Um, in Switzerland, I spent a, a, a part of my sabbatical there working in a clinic that um, provided heroin to heroin addicts every day, twice a day, seven days a week as part of their treatment. Uh, now, this program has been go in effect in Switzerland for more than 20 years. Uh, it works. Uh, the majority of people in the program are working. Uh, they are happy. They all have housing because it's in Switzerland. Um, and so uh, it tells us that the major culprit here is not heroin because these people are still on heroin and they are productive members of their society and they're happy uh, because their government provides a substance to them uh, as part of their treatment along with other sort of uh, treatment um, uh, therapies like uh, they have a psychiatrist, they have a psychologist, they have an internist, they have a social worker, they have a wide range of number, a wide range of professionals on their treatment team. And this works. We haven't had such a commitment here in the United States. Yeah. Have you ever had a moment where you thought, you know what, this substance is like, this isn't working for me, or I'm, I'm getting a little too into the substance? Like, have you ever had a moment where you needed to recalibrate or worried about developing an issue? Uh, I have that moment all the time when I do something like alcohol. I don't do alcohol as much as I get older. Uh, for it's the the effects, uh, the after effects are just too much for me as I get older. Uh, but I all I am always cognizant of what I'm doing because you can imagine uh, somebody like me uh, developing an, an addiction. It would be people would love to make fun of me for that oh, yeah. sort of thing. And so uh, I am. 
I am one of the most anal retentive people you want to meet. Uh, and so I have to work out every day. I have to do all of these sorts of things to make sure that uh, I take care of myself and, and to make sure that I am not the reason uh, that people say, you see, drugs are so awful uh, and you're awful. And, and so I don't want to, uh, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to be uh, a representative who is uh, uh, embarrassing other people. Is there a genetic predisposition to liking certain substances and disliking others? And is there a genetic predisposition to addiction? Well, the best work or the most data uh, when it comes to some biological substrate for addiction uh, comes from alcohol, and that data uh, varies widely. Uh, there is some evidence that suggests that children of alcoholics are more likely to uh, develop alcoholism, uh, but then there's other data that refutes that, but that's the best. Uh, and when it comes to other drugs, there is virtually nothing that indicates that there is a biological substrate. Yeah. Um, talk to me about the opioid crisis. Um, what is your understanding of how it developed? What is your view of like what the root causes are and also of what the appropriate response is? So when we talk about the opioid crisis, people conflate a number of issues. So if you would allow me, I'd like to talk about it in, in two ways. First, I'll talk about uh, overdoses, then I'll talk about addiction. So when we think about the opioid crisis from overdoses, um, uh, that's a real concern. Uh, we know that uh, 80,000 Americans died last year in the country uh, and they had some drug in their system. About 45,000 of those individuals had uh, an opioid in their system. The most important point here is that the vast majority of any of these individuals had multiple drugs in their system. So we don't know what was the causal agent. But we like to point to the opioids because the opioids are sexy right now. Uh, whether or not the opioids actually caused the deaths, I don't know, nor do the people who did the death investigation, in part because the people who are doing death investigations, well, the majority of the death investigations in this country are not qualified. Uh, they are, they're mainly coroners, um, and coroners, the only sort of qualification that they need is a high school diploma and a few hours of uh, course in death investigation. And death investigations are, are not uniform uh, throughout the country. Uh, and in some cases, they don't even need to do a biological assay uh, to call it an, an opioid-related overdose. Uh, and so that's a major problem when we're trying to figure out what's going on. But we, what we do know is that when you combine opioids with another sedative, like alcohol, a benzodiazepine like Xanax, or mm -hmm. an antihistamine like promethazine, it increases the likelihood of respiratory depression. And that can lead to death, of course. And so, since we know that, we should be telling the population, if you're going to use opioids, especially if you're a novice, don't combine it with another sedative because it increases the likelihood of respiratory depression. Another thing that we know is that a large percentage of these opioid-related deaths 
are due to the fact that people receive tainted drug, a drug that's tainted with something like fentanyl or fentanyl analog, when they were expecting to get something like oxycodone or heroin. When you take too much fentanyl, thinking that it's oxycodone alone or heroin alone, that can lead to death. That's easy to solve. All we need to do is have these drug checking facilities where people can submit small samples of their substance and get a chemical printout. If the substance contains a contaminant, don't take it and they will know that. We do this in Spain, we do this in the Netherlands, in the Netherlands uh, they do it in Austria, uh, but we don't do it here. Uh, and so the opioid crisis as it relates to overdoses can easily be solved if we were not moralists, of course. Yeah. Now, when we think, when we think about addiction, uh, again, the vast majority of people who use opioids for, uh, who are prescribed opioids, uh, uh, the vast majority of them, as much as 99%, will never meet criteria for addiction. Uh, but this, there has been this uh, focus on addiction by people who are prescribed opioids, when in fact, that is so unlikely. Uh, and But what it has done is that it has prevented people who are in pain from getting their medications because physicians are afraid to prescribe opioids. Uh, as I pointed out earlier, the reasons for addiction have almost nothing to do with the drug itself uh, and all of these other psychosocial functions. And so if we would focus on those issues as opposed to the drugs, we would go a long way in solving this opioid crisis. So there was a conversation, um, and now actually the numbers are changing, the racial makeup of who is struggling with addiction with opioids. But there was a real conversation in the beginning that I think it, I would love to get your thoughts on about people are having a different view of addiction to opioids because it's predominantly white people who are getting addicted and some also white middle class people who, you know, you read about the kid who had a sports injury and they get prescribed oxy. And next thing you know, they're having um, real struggles and issues or even overdosing and dying. Um, my view was kind of like, it's unfortunate that all addiction issues aren't viewed in a humane way, but I was glad to see at least this one is maybe changing some hearts and minds, even though, yeah, of course we wish that black people or lower income people would receive that same sort of compassion. And hopefully this can be the start of that also being applied to other segments of society. What did you make of that whole conversation? Yeah, uh, the, the conversation is a historical number one. Uh, we did exactly the same thing with crack in the 1980s. Uh, we had treatment for white users and jail for black and brown users. Mm -hmm. It's exactly the same thing. When we look at the, the opioid sort of situation today, 80% of the people who are sent to jail for opioids are, are black and brown people. Mm. Uh, wow. By the, same, by the same token, we are sending other folks to treatment as well we should, the ones who are having problems. So that's not a commentary on that, but we just need to understand that this isn't new. This is exactly what we did with crack, but the way yeah. we talk about it is ahistorical, like we don't always do this. Mm. Yeah, um, so, you know, I've been of the belief for a while that what I'd like to see on this front is complete end to the drug war, free every single nonviolent drug offender, 
and let's do, I, I'm not just in favor of legalizing marijuana and decriminalizing the others. I want to see total legalization, taxation, and regulation. That's what I'm in favor of. Now, you mentioned a couple other solutions as well there, like these centers where you go and you can test the purity of your drug and this is how you'd know oh i bought heroin but this is full of fentanyl and if i have my normal dose i'm going to kill myself if i do that so that's an easy solution that would save lives but like you said there's this moralistic lens that society views it through where they think like oh now you're endorsing people doing hard drugs and we can't do that so my question for you is uh Apart from legalization, taxation, and regulation, what other ideas are there uh, for us to fix a lot of these problems? Yeah, so one of the things that, if you will allow me to address for a second, people have said, uh, well, you should push for decriminalization. Why are you pushing for legalization now? Uh, I wanna make it clear, when we decriminalize a drug, it does not deal with this issue of uh, contaminants that may be contained in drugs. Right. You're still getting drugs from this illicit source and people still have uh, an increased likelihood of overdosing. That's number one. And it still does not deal with this issue related to police over-policing certain communities. Mm -hmm. In New York, we decriminalized marijuanas in 1977. Uh, but you still have police in the city arresting uh, black and brown people for small, around, small amounts of marijuana. Despite the fact that it's decriminalized, police still have the discretion under decriminalization to mess with certain people and not with other people. That's why I am a, su uh, a supporter of uh, uh, legalization, and legalization is consistent with the principles in the founding document of the country. Now, if we are going to have a graduated step towards uh, uh, legalization with decriminalization, that's cool. Uh, but we have to make sure that we have uh, those drug checking centers in place. And we need to also make sure that we change the education that we give around drugs. We can no longer uh, talk about drugs in this way that they only produce negative effects. Uh, that's just simply not true. And we can no longer talk about people who may choose to engage in substance use as if they are somehow mentally ill when in fact they are seeking to alter their consciousness, they're seeking to uh, increase pleasure. Nothing's wrong with that. And so we have to make sure we change the way we talk about the, uh, this, this, their sub, uh, this subject. Um, and, and those are the major sort of things that uh, I'd like to see us do. Do you think that the discourse and the political landscape around these issues has improved significantly, though? I mean, I think about like Joe Biden and the fact I mean, he wasn't just he didn't just sign on to the crime bill. He was the architect of the crime bill. Um, but he loves to point out, you know, the Congressional Black Caucus supported that horrific mass incarceration bill. And so that came out, of course, of the, the crack epidemic and all of the violence that was associated with that. Now that Biden's in the White House, I mean, in, in theory, he supports the marijuana decriminalization. He hasn't really done anything on any of these things, but at least he's not like a quite the war on drugs warrior that he used to be. So just looking at him, looking at the evolution of our political environment, do you think that people are evolving to a less sort of moralizing position? And where do you think that that comes from? 
I think the population is uh, certainly evolving. Um, politicians, on the other hand, um, I have no positive things to say about them. They, they follow, <laughs> Fair enough. They, they, follow, they follow the people. I would just remind folks that when we think about uh, drug uh, arrests uh, under uh, Clinton, Bush II, and Obama, we continued all of these awful arrests under presidents who I voted for, uh, and so they have been regressive. They have not, they're not going to lead, they never do, not on this issue. Uh, the population leads, and the population is changing their view about these drugs in part because of the promise of tax revenues. Uh, we can look at states that have legalized marijuana, for example. Uh, they have generated quite a bit of tax revenues and other states are looking to get in the business in order to increase their tax revenues. This would be consistent with why we overturned uh, prohibition in 1933. Uh, alcohol was prohibited in the United States from 1920 to 1933. Uh, and the reason why we overturned prohibition uh, is because of the promise of getting rid of the income tax. We promised the American people that we were going to get rid of the income tax if we repealed prohibition. Um, that was the driving force behind repealing prohibition not because we were good people, not because it was the right thing, not because we wanted to allow people to drink, no, but we overturned it because of the promise of overturning also the tax uh, income. Okay, um, you, you mentioned earlier about how when you look at the history of opium use it was sort of the criminalization of it was sort of linked to the fear of chinese immigrants when they were building the railroads what a lot of people don't know is that for all substances it's not like a group of scientists sat down and they said okay this one's dangerous this one's okay this one's dangerous this one's okay so that's how we're going to set the laws it's not like it's based on science it's not like it's based on rationality and in fact in the nixon white house there was an admission i think the story broke like mm. five or so years ago but there was this admission where they said behind the scenes yeah we're we're criminalizing drugs because the white hippies don't vote for us and we want to lock them up and black and brown people don't vote for us and we want to lock them up. Might as well criminalize our political opponents. This stuff is on the record. So I love that. I love the way you talk about this. And I also love how apart from the history of it, which is obviously grotesque, you also talk about it from a principled perspective of these are you know, this is our right. You should be able to put in your body whatever you want to put in your body as as long as you're not hurting anybody else. And so my final question for you is, what's the worst pushback that you've gotten on your book? And in your opinion, is there anybody that's really being fair about it? Or are, are, or are the taboos so deep that even people who are supposed to be nominal allies are sort of giving you pushback? Oh, wow. Uh, the pushback is mainly coming from people who haven't read, read the book. And so um, I, tr I can ignore most of it, um, uh, but the most intense pushback comes from 
places like the New York Post and readers of that nonsense, uh, and then also uh, this sort of uh, select uh, population or group of uh, progressive sort of uh, black folks uh, who uh, haven't read the book. Uh, and this book is actually uh, uh, written uh, in the spirit of people like James Baldwin, who also argued that we should legalize drugs, but they don't, these folks don't know that sort of thing. Uh, and the people who have been uh, supportive, there has been so many people who've been supportive. People have come out of the closet about their drug use. It's It's been overwhelming. I've been so pleased. Um, there have been people like you guys who have me on and we can actually talk about this and you ask questions uh, and then we can figure out uh, if, if, if what I'm saying is baseless. Uh, uh, there have been people like, people like Joe Rogan who has uh, had me on to, uh, again, explain my position in a way that we do it in a dispassionate way uh, that's fact-based. Um, I just want to leave people with this final thought, if they will, if they can remember this. Uh, in 1969, I believe it was uh, when we had the Stonewall sort of uprising, uh, where people, where the police uh, raided uh, 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 these uh, uh, places that uh, our gay community hung out at. And um, we now look at that as an embarrassment, as that's wrong. Um, but at the time when we were vilifying gay people, uh, those people were no less human than they are now. They were human uh, then as they are now. The same is true with people who are using drugs. So even if we are slow to acknowledge their humanity, uh, that doesn't mean that they are less human. That means that we are fucked up, not them. Mm. Yeah. One other thing that you touched on that I think is um, something I've been thinking a lot about. So in Virginia, they just uh, voted to legalize marijuana by by 2024. So a few years down the road, Virginia happens to be my home state. It's the first state in the South to do so. I think it's the 16th state overall. And um, the cynical part of me knowing the state also knows that Altria is based in the state and stands to potentially profit off of marijuana legalization. You were talking about how prohibition ended with alcohol because of money. It wasn't because of mor morals or people making an argument like you are about liberty or freedom or anything. It was about money. Um, do you worry about that with regards, especially right now, you know, the issue that's mostly on the table is marijuana legalization. Do you worry about this basically being like another sort of corporate power grab moment? Uh, yeah, of course it is. It's going to be a corporate uh, power grab moment. They always do that. That happens under capitalism. And that's just a function of capitalism. I worry about that uh, when I watch uh, professional sports. I worry about that all the time. Uh, but the overriding sort of thing that's driving me is this issue of individual liberty. Um, and that trumps all of that other stuff. And I can't really do anything about capitalism because I'm not an expert in that area. But I can do something about drugs, and that's where I'm pushing. But of course, uh, American corporations are poised to benefit. And last question I had for you. Have you received um, pushback from your university at all? Has that been uncomfortable for you? Other academics in your field, has that been, like in terms of your professional um, reputation, has that been difficult at all? 
No, it, it, that hasn't been difficult at all yet. Uh, uh, and I don't really expect it to be. You know, uh, I just refer people to my record. You look at my CV, I publish more in the scientific literature than most people in this area, uh, my books. And uh, I challenge folks to uh, uh, show me someone who adds, is as productive as I am in this area. And so uh, my record speaks for itself. And if people want to uh, grapple with the evidence or or uh, discuss uh, this subject based on evidence, oh, I'm there. I'm happy to do that. So my record stands on its own. Dr. Hart, I'm a I'm a huge fan. You know, I can't recommend your book enough. Uh, again, everybody, it's called "Drug Use for Grownups: Chasing Liberty in the Land of Fear." Highly, highly, highly recommend it. Please pick it up. Please check it out. And tell everybody where uh, where they could find you on your social media, which, you know, whichever you prefer. Yeah, you can find me at uh, Dr. Carl Hart. Uh, that's in Twitter. That's at doc Dr. Carl Hart. That's Dr. Carl Hart. Uh, the same name, CarlHart.com on my website, um, uh, Twitter, uh, Instagram. Uh, I'm out there. Uh, I love to hear from you, particularly. Uh, I love to hear your thoughts on the book. Thank you so much for having me. Doctor, it's our pleasure. Thank you for taking the time with us. We really appreciate it. So Dr. Carl Hart, let me tell you, that's a courageous guy. Yeah. Like mm -hmm. to not just be, you know, calling out what is the obvious failure of the war on drugs and the unbelievable negative impacts, the fact that it actually causes addiction and overdose rates to be higher than in other countries that have less prohibition, but to affirmatively be making the case like drug use not only shouldn't should be legal, but can actually be good and oftentimes is good for adults when using responsibly is a very brave position to take. Yeah, the reason why I respect him massively is that he is the only person making that specific case. There are plenty of people out there making the case, like I would argue Joe Rogan makes the case of like, weed is good, psychedelics are good, but oh, here's a group of really bad drugs and don't do those drugs. Right. Like, everybody's got their blind spots of like, not that, not that, not that. And I feel like Dr. Hart makes me feel like I'm not crazy because I've always been of the opinion that, and I've said this to you before, if I'm taking something that brings me up or brings me down, I generally like it. Mm -hmm. The only things I don't like are things that make me talk to Scooby-Doo. Right. Like when I see things that aren't there or feel something that's too overwhelming where I want to tap out of that feeling, I don't like that. So I don't like psychedelic drugs. Even even marijuana, which is mildly psychedelic, I dislike. But anything that brings me up or down, I like. And so that means, yeah, there are Adderall is basically a version of freaking methamphetamine. I like it. Uh, Percocet is basically like he was saying, or Vicodin or any oxys, sort of a, a small dose of heroin. I like it. And the fact that, like, I've had these things and had positive experiences, but 100% of the commentary I've seen my entire life from other people is like, that's bad and that's wrong and it's going to ruin your life and blah, 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 blah. And then along comes this guy who's an expert who's like, actually, you're all full of shit and it's totally fine that you like these substances. Well, that makes me feel good. It's funny the way he came to it, too, because he actually came at it from the place of the, like, the moralizing stigma mm -hmm. place and was able through his research and what he saw in the lab to question his own assumptions and beliefs, which I think is a very difficult thing to do. Um, to your point of how 
out on a limb he is with mm-hmm. this. During the Democratic primary, when I had a chance to interview Bernie Sanders, yep. I asked him, I pushed him on this issue of like, what, you know, okay, you talk about the Portugal model of decriminalization, and you're certainly in favor of decriminalizing, legalizing marijuana. But what about these other drugs? And I asked him specifically about heroin, and he had this very negative reaction. Nope. Very, yeah. yeah. And mm-hmm. he was like, if you want to push heroin, then, you know, that's right. not going to be okay with me. Yeah. And so even someone like him, mm-hmm. who is, uh, you know, as thoughtful as you can be on a range of issues and as left as you are allowed mm-hmm. to be in American politics, there was this instant negative, like, oh, well, if you're talking about heroin, like, absolutely yeah. not. That's completely off the table, which I, I think just speaks to how deep the stigma is. Because even for me, in mm-hmm. that conversation with Dr. Hart, and I'm as left and libertarian on these issues as you possibly could be, there were still moments that were like uncomfortable for me that uncovered my own sort of ossified, culturally shaped ways of thinking about these drugs that was that was sort of eye-opening and illuminating my own biases here that I hadn't even really recognized were there. Yeah. Like he says, about 75% of all drug users are what we'd call moderate users, where it doesn't negatively affect them taking care of their responsibilities, uh, which means about 25% of them may have an issue, right? And the way that we think about these things is that with certain substances, it's just like you're guaranteed to have an issue if you do that substance. And basically, he comes along and says that's fundamentally not true. And again, he's the only person saying it, which means I, I just have a tremendous amount of respect for him. But on the Bernie Sanders point, like, I, you know, I want to be kind and I want to be fair. And the fact of the matter is these things take time. Mm-hmm. Not everybody's going to agree with my position of legalize, tax and regulate. You right. know, and what was in, was Andrew Yang's position decriminalize Andrew, all drugs or was it legalize yeah. all? It was decriminalize, right? I think it was decriminalize. He was definitely the furthest out there. He was the furthest out there. out there, but even he wasn't Tulsi, for legalizing Tulsi taxing. Also had a was well positioned on this. She was but good on this issue. Even too. they weren't for legalizing, taxing, and regulating all, all drugs. drugs. Right. It was decriminalize all them and legalize and marijuana. And also, we're not pretending this is like a political winner. You know, like this isn't one of those issues oh. where we're like, oh, if you pull it, it's got eighty percent support. No, 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 no. This, no. Is this very, one takes time. This right. one takes time. But sometimes issues where you're right, things that you're correct on in a morally correct position doesn't mean that they're going to be broadly popular. So, yeah. Right. Well, if I was running, I wouldn't run on this if I was running. I still believe in legalizing, taxing, and regulating, but I'd be putting front and center Medicare for all and things of that nature. Yes. You know what I mean? But, uh, I mean, I wanted to give the example of th- the way I felt about universal basic income and how I needed to be brought to mm. that position because I originally was against it. And then I, you know, I read about this thing called a negative income tax, which is like the lower you are on that economic ladder, the more the lower your tax rate is to the point where some people get a negative income tax rate where they get paid a subsidy. And my idea was like, oh, that makes it so that it targets the money to the people who need it more. But then I was eventually moved off of that in favor of UBI because as a general rule, I think universal programs are preferable to ones that are basically more targeted or means tested and basically a negative income tax is like a means tested UBI and means testing is kind of bullshit. So anyway, I had to to be brought to that position and it took me time. And by the same token, you know, I might be in favor of legalizing taxing and regulating right now and Dr. Hart might be in favor of that, but most people, like you said, are not in favor of it yet, and I think they need education, and they need to hear this side of the story in order to to be brought to that position. And in my case, like I do think it has a lot to do with my own experience with drugs that kind of brought me to that position, because the entire time I was popping Percocets as I was selling cars, I was like, 
it's fucking crazy that this is illegal. This is something that is objectively helping me get through a tough mm-hmm. time. I feel fucking happy popping a Percocet and walking through the dealership when I would normally be miserable because I don't want to sell cars. I don't want to be here right now. Yeah. I want to do this shit, but it helped me get through it, and it made me you know, more talkative and more open and easier to connect with people. And it was, it was nothing but a positive experience. So when you think of like all the demonization of people who take it and the eye it's going to ruin your life or whatever, it made my life better. And I'm, yeah. you know, I'm somebody who admits that. And Dr. Hart's one of very few. I mean, th- again, think about how brave it is for him to bring up. Yeah, I recreationally did heroin. This is a black man in America saying I recreationally did heroin. Do you have any idea? Which is why the New York Post went with the smear article. Of course, and, yeah. Yeah, and it's like, and every Fox News viewer in in, in the world is going to be like, ah, they're a black guy doing heroin. Ridiculous. Meanwhile, should, yeah. mm-hmm. the guy is a neuroscientist. He's a professor of psychology. He's at Columbia University. The guy's brilliant. He's as accomplished as you could possibly be. Right, exactly. Yes. And that's part of, I mean, his book is not just a book, a well-researched, intelligently thought out book. It's also a piece of activism because his goal, like he said, yes. mm-hmm. which is why we responded so pos- positively to you sharing your experiences, is to bring people out of the closet, in her, his words, who are doing well mm-hmm. and successful so right, that yeah. some of that stigma can be um, challenged and brought down. You know, one of the things that I think is really interesting about his framing of this issue that I asked him about in the beginning is he's like, look, I saw all these positive benefits of drug use in the lab, but even if I didn't, right, even yes. if most of what I saw was mm-hmm. negative, I would still advocate for this position because I think it's foundational to liberty and to what the country is supposed to be all about. I think that's actually sort of a challenging position in some parts of the left of center because we tend to think more in terms of outcomes versus principles. Mm -hmm. And I think on the right, especially among libertarians, there's more of that commitment to like, this is my principle and I don't care if it has bad, bad effects. I don't care if it actually leads to some negative outcomes because the principle itself is so important to me. And I think that's a part of political analysis that often gets, it's not thought of properly because some people will prioritize, like the people who want to go around not wearing masks. It's a stupid position. Mm -hmm. You're jeopardizing other people around you. Or a better example is people who want to be able to go to church Mm -hmm. during the pandemic. Like they're saying it's worth it for me to take the risk because this is so important to my life and to these other foundational principles Mm -hmm. that it is worth me taking the risk. And I think oftentimes in the left, we completely dismiss those things as silly or you don't understand the science or Mm, you don't get where this is going to lead when there's actually a foundational principle there. I also think that there's a lot of like paternalism in in liberalism and in the sort of main stream of the Democratic Party where it's like, we know what's best for you. So we're going to put these bans on. We're going to control your life. Even in the UBI thing, the pushback Mm -hmm. to UBI is like, oh, well, people are going to spend their money in these crazy ways versus just, no, actually, we should trust people to be grownups and make reasonable decisions and help to enable a culture where they're educated enough to know what those decisions will lead to and evaluate it appropriately. To your point, it's like... You hear this oftentimes on a variety of policy issues. You'll hear people ask the question, does it work? Mm. Does this thing work? Yeah. And again, that's an outcome-based, what mm-hmm. are the consequences of this? That's right. one way of thinking about it. But I honestly, I think sometimes not only does that, that question not apply, it's actively stupid. Mm. And, no, seriously. <laughs> and here's a good example of that, foreign policy. 
people will say all the time, oh, if we do this intervention, will it work? And it's like, well, hold on now, hold on, hold on now. What makes you think we have the right to illegally and offensively bomb Syria, for example, as Biden just did? Why do we have the right to do that? If any other country on earth did that, we, we would immediately say, you're violating international law. This isn't acceptable. We're going to sanction you, and maybe we're going to do regime change and get rid of whoever your leaders are. So the, the issue of, like, the, to f- phrase it, does it work? Sometimes that question is dumb, and you have to go back to first principles. But to be fair to uh, Dr. Hart, you're correct that he said, hey, even if there was harm in advocating for this position, I would still advocate for this position as a matter of principle. But to be fair to him, he believes, I believe this as a matter of principle, and it also happens to be the case that he thinks it's the least harmful thing. He thinks there's a net benefit. Right. And I I happen to agree with him on that. Now, I will tell you the part that is maybe the most concerning to me is what we got into there right at the end, which is like, um, you know, you can already see this happening really clearly with marijuana, where Altry and the big tobacco makers Mm -hmm. like part of right. Part of the reason why legalization is happening with marijuana across the country is that tobacco companies and other big business outlets were like, oh, we can make money on this. Yes, let's make this happen. And um, you can end up with a situation because to me, this is part of the opioid crisis that um, went unsaid in this conversation is like you had these big pharmaceutical companies who weren't they weren't inactive bystanders. They were pushing things Mm -hmm. to people. So it wasn't just people sort of freely choosing what they wanted and doing in a responsible manner, et cetera. It was presented to them as like, this is what you need for pain. It's not addictive. There's no problem here. A doctor, someone official is giving it to you. There were all kinds of incentives in place. The FDA was snowed into, you know, putting this label on that indicated it was non-addictive, non-habit forming, et cetera, et cetera. And so I guess that's a part of it that I do worry about because we see this with something like soda or sugar or tobacco or any product that capitalism has been able to really grab a hold of. It's aggressively marketed. Oftentimes it's marketed to children. Um, So it becomes not so much a system of just freedom, liberty, and choice. It becomes a system where you're you're being aggressively sold and manipulated into using a product whether you really want it or need it or not. So my answer to that is that's why regulation is incredibly important. And that's why you can't have a system where we allow fraudulent claims to be made willy-nilly. In the same way that when a pharmaceutical company sells a substance, you've seen the commercials at the end of the commercials, side effects include diarrhea, your head will fall out your ass, your mom will hate you, and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> like, yeah, like, there's a reason we need regulation. Regulation is crucially important. And I'm not, you know, we're not free market anarcho-capitalist libertarian. So, right. you know, we, we look at it in that way. Um, I will say to your point, yes, there there was a time where that was definitely the case, where it was like a free for all. The pill mills in Florida, where they all they would have is like Xanax and and opioids. Mm-hmm. And yes, you're right, they were manipulating people and pushing the drugs on them. Where it's like the pharma companies were your drug dealer, basically. What Dr. Carl Hart was pointing to, and he's actually correct now, recently is that there's been a turn in the other direction where now the societal stigma because of the opioid crisis is these things are really bad, don't touch them, and there's all these rules and guidelines and now doctors are afraid to prescribe opioids even to patients who need them Mm -hmm. and they withhold the pills. And so now the pendulum has swung too far in the other direction. But to your broader point about corporatization, 
of course that's going to be a problem because yeah. that's, I mean, it's the United States of America. That's probably our number one problem is the corporatization of everything. Yeah. So in the same way that, you know, they'll lie to you and say food X, Y, and Z is healthy when it's packed full of processed sugar and, it, and it's terrible for you, they'll lie to you ab about this stuff too. And I'm reminded of, I think, don't quote me on this, but I think it was in Ohio they had a, a, a direct ballot initiative on legalizing marijuana. But the rule was oh, it's only like this one or two corporations that mm -hmm. can sell it. Mm -hmm. And it, that person had political connections to the governor oh, or whatever. John Boehner, right? He's on something. Yeah. I don't remember the anyway, details of yes. it, but what ended up happening was it actually went down. They didn't vote for legalizing oh, really? marijuana because, they because like of all part. the bullshit associated with it. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking at the time, this is actually a really difficult question because what do you do? Do you legalize it with this incredibly corrupt scheme around it and then try to like undo the scheme later on or do you just not legalize it now and try to bring it up again with better terms where it's not corrupt originally right you know and and, and again that's to your point of like the corporatization of everything unfortunately yes i do think that that's the way that this is going to unfold is that you're going to have a lot of corporatization and corruption around the issue as it begins to become more mainstream and that's what's happening you said to yourself 16 states or something already legalized marijuana yeah i mean the ship has sailed the federal government is mostly hands-off now, and they let the states do what they want mm -hmm. on this front, and mm -hmm. that's going to lead to a business boom and increased tax revenue. And on the one hand, I'm happy that that's the case because it increases freedom, but on the other hand, like you said, the corporatization and corruption angle of it is horrendous. We wish we could have the substance without all yeah, the corruption well, tied to it. You're creating an entirely new market. Right, yeah. And mm -hmm. in doing that, you could create it in a way that didn't lead to... Altria and John Boehner mm -hmm. and like massive corporate interest just taking everything right. over and making it the same hellscape as all the rest of American capitalism. People who I'm sure are a lot more thoughtful and a lot more well-read than me on this issue have probably thought through what those laws and regulations actually look like. But I do think that's an important piece of this. But, you know, overall, um, just I cannot get over how courageous it is for him to take this position, to come out of the closet, as he said, to try to put it on the mainstream, knowing that he's gonna be smeared, knowing right, mm -hmm. that he's gonna be attacked, knowing the things. I mean, he came in with his eyes completely open of just how ugly this would be, but also finding a lot of heart in the, the support that he's gotten from unexpected places as well. Uh, I'm a little jealous. Am I courageous? Why aren't you calling me courageous? I told everybody about how I was like, popping pills. You're fishing like for the compliment nothing. here. Yeah. You're very courageous, Kyle. Very courageous, it's an right? Honor to sit next and to you here. Let's not kid around. When I'm high as balls, fire tweets. <laughs> everybody knows no one, it. No one can disagree with that. Every one of those tweets that everybody loves. Should I, you want me to pull some? That's of them? all right. We're good. Don't worry about it. It's okay. It's all right. Every one of those tweets that everybody loves was I was high on something. Are was, you you're feeling hungry right now, Kyle? <laughs> She went there. She went there. What the fuck? <laughs> a little bit. I am. No, I'm just kidding. Um, what if you read some of your old tweets to Dr. Hart? <laughs> like, here's some of the product of the pills. Let me just let me just pull a few of them up here. I mean, listen, it, if the trend holds true for whatever, I don't know why, but for whatever reason, it makes everybody like me more. <laughs> I don't know why that is. That makes no sense to me, but that's what's happened every single time. People are so desperate for someone to just be like a normal human being that they're like, oh my God, you're normal. That's amazing. 
well, some of them are inspired by Four Loco. Some of them are inspired <laughs> by Percocet. Some of them are inspired by Adderall. Some of them are inspired by these pink pills that I think were opioids that the business manager at the car dealership stole from his grandma and gave oh to me. Oh, my God. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, we're, I'm, I'm a gigantic <laughs> wow. piece of shit. I shouldn't be saying any of this. Stuff courageous, about. Kyle Kalinske. Very courageous. What can I say? So <laughs> courageous. Um, do we have any, like, who, who do we have on next week? I can't remember. My brain. Oh, um, we we don't have anything. Oh, we have an amazing guest next week. We it's don't have be it a permanently locked in yet because <laughs> we've been sw- anyway. We've been messing with the schedule a little bit. Um, this is going to be a ridiculous thing to ask in the middle of this segment. But is this the intro or the outro? This is the outro. <laughs> okay. We're ending. Okay, so that's all I got. <laughs> really, Smooth landing. We really buttoned this up perfectly. Smooth here landing. Again. Um, anyway, I get high a lot on you. <laughs> Thanks for watching or listening, guys. And yes, we will have an incredible guest for you next week. Um, make sure you do all the things. Share this if you like it. Tell other people about it. And um, yeah, enjoy your week. We'll see you next week. <laughs>